0: The Internet History Podcast is brought to you by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but the odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build. Apps like Slack, Coinbase, Facebook Messenger, Oculus, Lonely Planet, and many more. MetaLab wants to bring their unique design philosophy to your project – let them take your brainstorm and turn it into the next billion-dollar app, from ideas sketched on the back of a napkin to a final shipped product. Check them out at metalab.co. That's metalab.co. <laughs> Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today we're going to go back to take a look at early journalism on the web once more. Carl Matson helped launch one of the first political news websites, ElectionLine. He helped cover the 1996 election when covering an election on the web was a completely new thing. He then moved to AOL, helped run their news channels, and has some amazing stories. About the historical details of the moment, especially around the Clinton intern scandal, please enjoy this exceptional look back at when political coverage and the World Wide Web first met. A conversation with Carl Matson. Carl Matson, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. No, oh, you're you're welcome, Brian. It's good to be here. Um, so let's let's get into the uh, the background details a little bit. It looks like, from what I can see on LinkedIn, that you went to school for uh, journalism. Essentially, is that right?
1: Yeah, I did. I um, I got an undergraduate degree at the College of William and Mary, and then I went to the University of Missouri Graduate School of Journalism, and that is the actually actually the oldest J school in the country. So they have a really really good broadcast program.
0: I did not know that. Um, so you're not you didn't have a tech background. Were you a nerdy kid? Were you into computers or anything like that? I was a little bit, um,
1: but what really opened my eyes to to the web was um, I read a book back in the day called uh, The Media Lab by Stuart Brand, and it was all about what MIT's Media Lab was doing and sort of how it was creating the future web. And um, nonetheless, I, I went through my graduate program and became a broadcast news producer specializing in politics, and I ended up at the ABC News Bureau in Washington, D.C. as a producer. Uh, one day I, 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 uh, I got to work and I was riding the elevator and I saw a little notice uh, on this like bulletin board that said, hey, do you want to cover campaign 96 in a way that no one else has ever done? It's a joint venture between ABC Newsweek and The Washington Post and we're going to cover it online on the web. And I saw that and I was just like, that is for me.
0: Do you Do you know when you saw that had ABC been doing anything on the web at that point? No, none at all. So this was uh, late
1: 1995, and most of the major um, news organizations at that point had not yet done anything on the web. Um, some of them were beginning to make an investment. Uh, the Washington Post was one of them. But it's 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 you know it's it's hard for people to understand that now. But this was a time period where these these organizations like the New York Times, ABC News, Newsweek, Washington Post. There was a lot of distrust about what the web presented to um, the world in terms of journalism, because in their view, uh, the fact that anybody could put anything on the web was just frightening to them. Like they just envisioned this, this world where, you know, the norms and, and the rules around quality journalism would just be thrown out the window. And so they knew they kind of had to go there and they were dipping their toes into it. But I wouldn't say that they were you know doing it with a whole lot of excitement.
0: So, uh, when when you joined the project, was there was it sort of like the redheaded stepchild, and you, you weren't given a lot of resources, and people were skeptical of it, or was were there people involved that were like that that got it? It's interesting. For the most
1: part, it was a redheaded stepchild, um, but it was led by a couple of um, folks um, who. Who really believed it and saw the internet for what it could be? One of them was named Evans Witt. And he was my boss, but he had been doing things with uh, the Voter's News Service and, you know, real-time election results for over the web, um, mainly just in news organizations for you know five, ten years or so. But um, we weren't exactly staffed. I was part of a three-man team uh, for this Washington Post, uh, National uh, ABC News, and Newsweek site. And the three of us literally worked every day, about 16 hours a day, for at least the first seven weeks. And we built this really robust political news site and had it online in time for the Iowa caucuses in 96.
0: So what's that's like, what, uh, February or March of 96? Uh,
1: you know, it was I think it's early February. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, it was just a complete grind. And, you know, this was during the age of HTML2, HTML2.0. So you could learn HTML pretty quickly,
0: but we had so many huge challenges with simple things like publishing systems. You know? Right, because as I've said a million times, there's no there's no things like CMSs back in those days. Like, are you literally like hard coding each page every day? Uh,
1: eventually, that's what we had to do. We started out with a very expensive publishing um, uh, tool made by a, a Digital Equipment Corporation, which is no longer in business. But this thing was so buggy that they ended up sending a team of five engineers from the deck headquarters to our newsroom to watch how we published and to sort of fix this thing on the fly. In fact, it had an early form of a WYSIWYG editor, which is, you know, um, what you see is right. what you get uh, type of HTML coding. And it was so buggy that it would do things like arbitrarily... Um, uh, insert 79 pages of uh, paragraph returns into an HTML file, <laughs> which which would break the system because it was so large that it, the, uh, the publishing process that would get it to the servers uh, it just couldn't handle a file that large. So we ended up really hand coding most things. And one of the guys that I worked with was this just brilliant dude by the name of Bill Frischling. And he was a whiz with Word macros and so he wrote macros that created HTML docs and ended up actually putting the entire almanac of American politics on the website through his own form of self-made automation. So we were really just kind of trying to figure, you know, doing whatever we could to get it to work.
0: Okay, so I don't actually know if we've even said the name of the site. It was Election Line, right? Yeah, it was Election Line,
1: and we had two other competitors at that time. One was called um, Politics USA, and that was a venture of National Journal and the Hotline. And then the other one was CNN's All Politics. Mm. Um, we very quickly ended up merging Election Line and Politics uh, USA, merged, and we created a super site. And that was by April of that year. Uh-huh. And. Um, It was literally everything that Politico is now doing in terms of format, uh, mix of media and multimedia, everything down to, you know, having, you know, a cartoonist, you know, photo gallery type
0: thing. Um, Well, so and and so that that mega site was politics now. That's correct. Okay, so this is what I like to do for these sorts of things. Let's let's imagine it's April of 96, maybe even May of 96. Like if I'm if I come to the site, what would I see? Like what? Would I see that day's headlines? Is there a community? Are there message boards? Like, what, what, what would my experience be in '96? You would
1: go to you would go to the homepage, and you would see what looks like what you would see now, in the sense that you would see a a a composed homepage of different stories and different packages, um, including you know things like issue briefers to spot news to profiles uh, to a promotion for a live event. Uh, we did live events a couple times a week with big name political players like Newt Gingrich and that sort of thing. And we had a very, very, very vibrant community. Um, it was a message boards based community and it was, it was one of the most, um, active and, and most intelligent online communities I've ever worked with. Um, these people were mainly political professionals or just political junkies, but, uh, what they knew and what they were willing to work together on was pretty fantastic and we ended up actually creating a um a whole project for our community it was called uh the civility project and we you know it was a a right and left um approach or attempt to kind of create sort of a code of campaign ethics and we worked with a bunch of people in the business you know pros and in this community ended up creating like a um it was basically a code of campaign ethics that was actually taken to the house floor and read into the, into the house record.
0: Before we move off this community aspect, um, you know, given, given the state of, of online discourse now, I wonder if you have any memory of the, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, the temperament of the, the right versus left of the, of the, just the, the political discourse in that online community in 1996. Was it civilized more civilized than you would think today
1: actually it is it was just as intense as what you'd see today in the comments section of a political story it was uh, very very partisan and could at times be pretty uh, pretty nasty and pretty mean uh, so we had to moderate it with a pretty close eye to sort of you know take care of the trolls and that kind of thing but when I look back on it now it's 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 remarkable in that so little has actually changed in terms of the way, you know, people on the left and people on the right communicate with each other about various political issues.
0: That's interesting because that's kind of I have this theory that it has kind of always been exactly the same. It's just that in the olden days, we weren't all on there. It was only a segment of us. Um, a couple other details. Uh the, like you say, the packages, the content, is it repurposed from, you know, the the Post and ABC News and Newsweek? Or are you guys able to do any breaking news and reporting of your own? That's a great question. And that was one of the big
1: issues that every new political news site faced at that time. Most of them um, were relegated to republishing the content that was, our, or the reporting that was already created by the you know, the quote unquote, real journalists, the ones who are working for Newsweek, the magazine or the Post, uh, the newspaper. What we quickly demonstrated, though, was that we, we were all reporters. And so we come, we published a combination of stories from our various corporate partners. uh, But we also broke a lot of our own news. And we wrote a lot of sort of uh, issues based explainers, and we generated a ton of content. And what was really interesting was, is we were the first news organization, Politics Now, that was credentialed to to go cover um, the political conventions. Mm. And so we we went to the '96 Democratic one in Chicago, and then the Republican one in San Diego, and it was crazy because we you get to the press tent and you would literally see huge sections of our website that had been printed out and were stapled together and were being used by broadcast producers and reporters <laughs> all over the place, you know, for the um, for the you know for the background and the content
0: and um you you have said to me over email that you think that some of the conventions that you guys maybe pioneered were things like uh like photo galleries as a story format things like that yeah that's true um you know the the advent
1: of the photo gallery or the slideshow or the listicle is sort of like calculus i think you know i I think it was kind of invented simultaneously at, like, two different places. But from my memory, I have a very vivid memory of us looking at server logs and trying to understand how people were sort of navigating through the site and what they were looking at. And we we realized, you know, there three of us were looking at these logs and comparing them to the stories, and we're like, wow, this story got like, twice as many clicks as the other one. And the only difference in it is that it has a picture of the caption in it. And then... <laughs> One of us was like, why don't we just string a bunch of pictures together and write captions and make that a story? And so we did that, and the
0: thing just went gangbusters. (laughs) So a lot more of that followed. Yeah, well, and and BuzzFeed, among others, owes you a debt of gratitude there. Um, Yeah, I'd like to apologize to the larger internet (laughs) for that, for our role in
1: creating BuzzFeed. Yeah.
0: what about what about things like uh, video and audio? Again, this is 96, so we're in the dial-up era, so there's not a lot of that. We're also in the era of, you know, real networks, and you have to have a, a plug-in to even do any of those things. Were you guys uh, putting up video and audio as well?
1: Yes, definitely. Uh, we were getting – we had access to the ABC News radio feed, and so we could go in and we did a lot of experimenting where we would – write sort of a print form story and then we would hyperlink the quotes in it so that if you clicked on it you'd actually hear the soundbite. And um you know we we tried all kinds of different formats and and ways of sort of creating a multimedia story. Uh, we didn't weren't able to do much with video because you know the bandwidth was just not there and even real real networks, you know, that the quality of that wasn't very good. However, when I ended up at the a o l news channel, we started doing a lot more with video and that was ninety that was ninety early that was ninety seven yeah
0: all right before we before we move to a o l uh tell me about um election night or uh you know covering uh the the actual event that you were you were there to do like um i I know that you know if we say that you guys got like a million hits on election night and it crashed the server that will sound that will sound a little cute to to people today but like tell me tell me about election night. Oh yeah, it was so our
1: whole this was a joint venture of many, you know, high quality news organizations. The, the express goal was to cover campaign 96 in a credible way on the internet and it all led up to election night. And so we had sold tons of ads to support us on that night. We knew it was gonna be huge for traffic. Uh, we were doing, we were the first uh, website to do real-time um, uh, exit polling that would come, was coming from the Voters News Service. And we're also the first um, political website that actually got on-air mentions uh, throughout that night. So if you were watching ABC News on election night 1996, um, you would be hearing, um, Uh, Peter Jennings repeatedly referring to politicsnow.com. You can go see, you know, your real-time results there. And that, you know, we we weren't really sure what we we were going to get out of that. Because, again, you know, this is really early. There weren't a whole lot of people who were watching TV and, you know, checking things out online. The upshot was is that we got more than 10 million uh, hits that night. And the traffic was so... uh, intense that it actually melted down a node, uh, uh, a switching node that basically broke the internet <laughs> in our area, our geographical area of you know, sort of Northern Virginia and Washington, DC. So there was this horrible period on election night for about two hours where you just couldn't even get on our website. And the traffic was just you know, horribly slow. And <laughs> it was like, we, 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 we joked at the time that, yeah, we actually broke the internet
0: before before we follow you to AOL um whatever became of politics now
1: so we were um we were kind of victims of our own success um uh we, we the, the site was really well respected within the actual political news community uh we we were reviewed by Walt Mossberg at the Washington or at the Wall Street Journal And he actually said that we were not only the best political site on the web, but the best news site on the web. And to have Walt Mossberg say that about you was pretty major back then. So uh, we were all concerned about what was going to happen after the election. And initially, the word came down that all of our corporate parents um, were very happy with the quality of the site and the reputation that we had built. And they they were all committed to funding it going forward. Well, by March of 97, early March, all of that had changed, and um, there was uh, – we knew something was up when we saw like all of our board members coming into the building and going into a meeting. And sure enough, two hours later, they came out, and uh, they said, all right, you guys did such a great job that we're, we all need to build our own websites now, so the site will be uh, going dark in two days. <laughs> So we went from like 100 miles an hour to nothing in like an hour period. But it all worked out really well because the the 14 or so of us that were part of the team that built this site, uh, we all went our separate directions and ended up helping do you know helping launch WashingtonPost.com, NewYorkTimes.com, USNewsAndWorldReport.com, like pretty much every major political website. Ended up with some of us working on it. And it was quite a crew. I mean, I've, I've, never, I've worked with some amazing people. But you know, two of our people went on to become political directors at ABC and, uh, and NBC. And one of them, uh, a guy by the name of Chuck Todd,
0: mm-hmm.
1: is now the uh, host of Meet the Press.
0: So right, it's almost like uh, the they talk about the PayPal Mafia. This is like the <laughs> the, the political, politics. yeah, the Poli- politics Mafia. It's now Mafia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so uh, how do you how do you end up at AOL? I had I I had multiple job offers
1: and and I you know I'd seen the power of the web at scale for what it was at that point, point. and you know at that at that time the those of us who were doing web-only type stuff kind of looked down a little bit on AOL because it had its own sort of walled garden of content. It was kind of seen as the Internet for beginners. But what I was really fascinated fascinated about um, when I thought about AOL was this was the largest concentration of people on the Internet that you can access anywhere at that time. And I wanted to go do what I had learned in politics now Uh, and see how that played out in front of a mass audience. And so I I went there, uh, much to the surprise of a lot of my colleagues, but many of them ended up actually following me there one or two years later. It was a really interesting time because when I joined AOL, there were fewer than 5 million users. And then when I left five years later, there were 27 million. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we just saw this massive growth. And, you know, I worked for the news channel, at AOL, which was a big deal because they had major partnerships with, um, you know, with Newsweek, with New York Times, ABC News, uh, a small, a little new outfit called Slate, uh, one one called Salon. And my job was basically to be the sort of the Uber editor for all of our partners and kind of cherry pick the best of what our partners were doing and and promoting that and sort of composing our news that way.
0: And so the, the AOL News Channel, that was the part of the walled garden site or was there also, that was also part of their website?
1: So, uh, that, at that point in time, that was all part of the, in the walled garden. Okay. Uh, but we had just, we're getting ready to launch a, um, a web version called my news. And it's really interesting because, you know, at that time in 1997, uh, the AOL news channel was serving more than um, 1.2 million unique users a day. Uh, and by by comparison the circulation of the washington post at that time was 750,000 mm-hmm. readers per day so we were literally the biggest news channel on the internet um which you know nobody really talked about much then but was actually the case
0: um just real quick as i'm thinking of it uh, cuz AOL always had that sort of schizophrenic relationship with the web where it's like well we want to keep people on our stuff but then we're making all this money by being the training wheels for the web like it, can you tell talk a little bit about that? Like AOL's, what AOL at least when you got there, what their relationship with the web was like.
1: I think schizophrenic is a really great way to describe it, Brian. I had come from the web, and then I went into AOL, and there was there was a sort of groupthink in there at the time that, especially with the people who had been there a couple of years, where some of them actually believed that you know. The AOL model might end up winning versus the open web. I never thought that for a moment, but there was always a lot of there was a lot of tension uh, between you know how do we create uh, content and live events and, and that sort of programming that will keep our users inside the wall of garden versus what responsibility do we have to to evolve as the web is evolving and move to a web based standard.
0: Speaking of evolving, and I've I've asked other people uh, involved in early uh, news stuff on the web this question, um, in 97, I feel like several people have told me this, it's 97, 98, somebody has told me this was, it was Princess Diana's death, and then obviously we're going to get into the Monica Lewinsky story here in a second, but this idea of, on in a digital era, News has to evolve into a twenty four seven. You know, you mentioned um, Slate when they when they launched. They originally were going to do weekly issues. <laughs> they were still thinking them of issues. So tell me about your just from your perspective and your experience about being there and feeling how news evolved in in a digital context.
1: No, it's it's a really that's a very good observation. And whoever mentioned um, Princess Diana was spot on. So what what I noticed to politics now, but less so than uh, more so at AOL was that there really was a 24-hour news cycle going on and we staffed the news channel around the clock to be able to update things when you know major breaking news happened so you could see it was very clear that that was where everything was going but there were a couple of watershed events that really um sort of cemented that and legitimized that whole approach and the first was definitely the death of Princess Diana um I'll never forget that weekend because I'd gone, uh, I'd gone with a couple of friends rafting, uh, whitewater rafting in West Virginia. So, so Ken,
0: I, let me, let me interrupt you real quick. That was the other story. I can't remember who this was. Linda McCutcheon maybe or somebody. Somebody told me that they're like, or no, maybe it was Slate where they were they were dark that week because you know it was the traditional thing. Like it's August or whatever it was, and it was it's like, Labor Day weekend, right? So right, you you take a week off. It's a slow news week anyway. <laughs> oh, mistake.
1: Absolutely. So i i was literally out of, out of touch that labor day weekend um and then until sunday morning uh, and then i had to get back up to dc uh to to get back to work and as soon as i turned the car radio on and heard about princess diana i just went oh my god and by the time i got back to my home where i could connect to the AOL network and do my my job there something amazing had happened like something that we had never seen before had happened And it what what happened was is that there was this sort of spontaneously created community of people who were really affected by this death, who wanted every little bit of news we could provide them about it, no matter what time of day it was. And from that point on, you know, through the following week to princess Diana's funeral, uh, we witnessed this just major change. And, um, you know, like for, for example, the whole AOL organization got, you know, involved in this Princess Diana programming and supporting these communities that had sprung up to sort of mourn her and um we did things like, you know, we got more than a million people to sign an online condolence book that, you know, we then took to the British embassy in DC and and our, and our traffic was just off the charts in terms of traffic to the news channel And that all culminated with her funeral, which, you know, started at something like three o'clock in the morning, East Coast time. Yeah, three or four o'clock. And yet our, you know, servers were just lit up with people who wanted to participate in that whole experience and sort of be part of that story. It was really something else. It changed the way we we thought about things.
0: And then uh, if if I remember correctly, hard on the heels of that uh, comes the Monica Lewinsky story. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So let's see, this is a 1998 in the, um, in the er early part of 1998, January. And, um, and so there's a lot of gossip going on in the political community because let's see, um, let's see, there was this guy out there who's still out there. His name is Matt Drudge. Um, on January 19th, he published something on his blog about an intern named Monica Lewinsky um, and a Newsweek story that had been spiked um, two days earlier. So at this point in time, Newsweek uh, came out every Saturday. And Saturday, January 17th, Newsweek decided not to publish this story. Uh, somehow that got to drudge. And, you know, within D.C. politics and political media, just the, everybody was like wondering what is going on here. And then on Wednesday, January 21st, um, the Washington Post published a pretty significant version of that story, and all hell broke loose. Like, I'll never forget seeing that front page because I'd stopped to get a coffee. I lived in Northwest DC, and then you know, drove out to AOL. I see this screamer of a headline about the president having an affair with an intern, and you know, by the time I get to my office at about 8:45. You know, I've already had like five phone calls and emails from Newsweek, and they're desperate to get their story out because they didn't have a website at that point. They had an AOL, they had an AOL area, but they had the better story. It was reported by Mike Isakoff. And so I spent the whole day sort of talking to Newsweek back and forth. They were vetting and re-vetting Isakoff's story with all of their lawyers. And then finally, around 6.30 in the evening, I get this email from Peter McGraw, who was my contact at Newsweek, containing the Isakoff story in, in the body of the email. And it was my job at that point to publish that to Newsweek's area and then make sure that we promoted it all over the service. And I remember reading that story going, I'm not going to get any time off this year. <laughs> 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 this is gonna, This is crazy. And so, of course, we published it. And um, that was a big deal because it was the first time anything like that had been published only on the web and not in another form. Um,
0: because because uh, Newsweek still has to wait for its weekly issue to run. It, yeah, exactly. And they didn't
1: have their website built. Um, all they had was, we, we called it an area on AOL, but it was like a little mini website written in the AOL proprietary markup language. and. And they're like, we've got to get this out here or we're going, to lose, we're going to lose our lead on this story. And that's when the horse race really began. And you know what followed in the next year really set the stage for what we see today you know, in terms of how stories are approached and reported in kind of a conversion s- style. Well, that's where-
0: But you know what? That's so funny. Think about this. It, as late as 1998, you have the biggest story in the world and you have one of the biggest media organizations in the world. And they can't get it out quick enough. Yeah, <laughs> like think about that. They just don't have the distribution. This needs to be out now, but they can't do it. I know. And you, their their
1: frustration was palpable. I could feel it through their emails. I could feel it when I spoke to them on the phone. And this it created this giant feeding frenzy. Um, you know, we had our major partners at AOL at that time were um, Newsweek, ABC News, Slate, Salon uh the the wire services and a couple others you know cartoon cartoons and whatnot and um suddenly we had we became the go-to channel for these organizations as they were reporting the various bits of this Lewinsky story throughout the year
0: yeah actually my memory of that is like there's a lot of things that like that was maybe the birth of online news culture where like you know things like move on.org came out of that and like people debating that stuff there's different a lot of people credit like 9-11 to that sort of thing but that was also in the era of blogs and things like that what I guess what I'm, I'm grasping for is like what is your memory of that year in terms of the story as you're managing it through AOL and like how the community is dealing with that and, and things like that
1: I remember very clearly thinking and talking about it with you know my boss, uh, a guy by the name of John Barth, who's a pioneer in his own right. I remember having many conversations where we were like, this story is is accelerating what we always thought was going to happen. Um, it's accelerating the way these news organizations work in terms of how they report and then the channels they choose. It's also accelerating the way, we thought that consumers would consume this stuff too. um, Because what we ended up seeing in our traffic logs was our number of unique visitors went up. But more interestingly, the number of times they visited the news site each day went way up. And that sort of, you know, presaged, you know, what we see now when you're, you know, you're checking your phone every 10 minutes to see what's going on. It was really, it was really, really intense. the biggest disappointment of it was, is that it was just such a tawdry story, you know, and it was this, there was a real sense that the broadcasters and even people like the Washington post and the New York times, like that, they had made a conscious decision to, to, to race to the bottom on this story. And that's when we ended up with, you know, things like the blue dress story and all of that.
0: The, um, before before I leave this, because I wanna I want to talk about AOL, um, the the idea that you're that you're managing this story again, you're not necessarily a you're not a Newsweek, you're not a, a New York Times. At AOL, I'm just curious, like what sort of like thinking went into like how you were packaging what you were delivering. Um, to the people that were that were reading on your channels,
1: yeah, no, it's 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 a great question, and it's it's a it's a fine line that AOL straddled at the time for various financial and, and legal reasons. Um, I approached my job in the same way that I approached producing a news broadcast. My partners were my reporters, and and they they would produce stories and report stories, and then I would choose. Or as a group, you know, those of us working on the news channel would choose the ones that we felt best reflected the reality. And we shone light on those, and then we would package, you know, package related things on others.
0: And you didn't have to, um, there was no pressure to, like,. Because remember, AOL had sort of that reputation for like, the the web's a scary place, but we're this nice company that that will make everything. There was never any pressure to like, especially with this story, clean it up or or hide from the tawdry aspects of it?
1: Well, there was some internal pressure. Um, We, you know, we in the news channel at that point in time within AOL, we kind of felt like we were sort of surrounded in the sense that our legitimate news partners were a little worried about how we might, what we might do with their content. But there was also this other school of thought within the AOL channel structure at the time that, you know, we should be making things more fun and, and, you know, we should do things like put up a bogus headline on April Fool's Day that says life's been found on Mars, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, there were many times where, you know, one or more of us were had our box ready at the desk, and we're ready to walk out because we we're being asked to do things that journalistically we're just not responsible.
0: Well, that's a perfect uh, seg to ask you about your your opinions of AOL as a company. You know, culturally, like you you were not one of those original people that had been there since '93 and fought the the battles and and uh, for for even legitimacy among tech people, but you are there. For- from for the period where AOL suddenly is like the the biggest company in the world for a brief period, um, just what's your impression of, of AOL at, at the height of, of the the dot com era and, and the mania? Uh, it was
1: it was a pretty pretty crazy mix of hubris and and brilliance and creativity. Um, when I joined AOL, the AOL channels, except for the news channel, they were publishing all of their content on a month out uh, schedule. So they had completely divorced themselves from what's going on on in the world that day, that minute, you know, that hour. And, you know, the new, the news channel and our approach to things really kind of changed things internally to where, you know, it became more of like a breaking news type organization where if a story would happen, you know, where our friends at AOL live would, would line up guests to do live Q and A's and, you know it really turned into this really great machine but from a corporate structure you know as we as we grew you know and the whole dot-com thing you know grew that whole bubble started blowing up you know the company made a lot of sketchy and sort of shady business development type deals with startups you know where, you know, we were our, our main, main thing that AOL could do for the web at that point in time was we had a fire hose of users and we could promote, you know, external websites and drive massive amounts of traffic to them. So much so that, you know, that was kind of a business model in Silicon Valley at the time. If you were a content-based startup, you'd get your VC money and the VCs would you know, then they would, they would say, all right, now go do a deal with AOL. So you actually, you know, get some eyeballs.
0: And by the way, give all of the money you just raised to AOL.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so at that point in time, I was running what we call the Mize or the, it was, it was the personalized portal for AOL. And then later also Netscape when we bought Netscape and CompuServe. But this was the, you know, this was what Yahoo ended up looking like, you know, it was a giant personalized news, sports and information type portal with lots of different channels and widgets in it and you know we sort of methodically went out to the web and found the best the best content producer for whatever the given widget was whether it was new you know whether it was the weather channel versus AccuWeather or you know market watch versus whatever
0: or horoscopes <laughs> yeah exactly and
1: did and did deals with all of those people so that they provided the content to us for free <laughs> in exchange for us um, driving eyeballs to their larger mm-hmm. websites, and that model just—you know—it didn't really work for the for our partners. It worked great for us because we got all kinds of great content, um, but there was a sense at the time—at least I felt—that like you know, this this is a, this model is not going to last.
0: Uh, expand on that for me. It, uh, <clears throat> you feel like people generally within the company were like, "This is great for now, but we're we're on borrowed time. This can't go on forever."
1: yeah exactly. Um, there were lots of you know
0: really, really smart people within
1: AOL who knew that you know it was all about doing every kind of you know paid carriage deal that that we could do and then using things like my AOL and the other channels you know to promote them. but I don't think anybody ever thought that was going to be sustainable for very long, and so I think that thinking kind of prompt was one of the prompts that drove our ceo steve case to you know hook up with time warner because we all could see in the near future that the model of of people paying us to give us their content is not going to work uh the one huge calculation that they got way wrong in terms of the merger was there was a real belief that you know that content in particular video content at that time was the future and we had tons of internal data that said otherwise that said you know if we focus on things like personalization and 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 create a really robust product that you know serves people personalized content and information management and things like that that those people will stick around and we we had data that showed that Instead, they decided to become a big media company, and you could kind of see the handwriting on the wall that that was not going to work.
0: Okay, so that's interesting. I uh, I've said before that you know everyone thinks well the the AOL Time Warner merger didn't work because uh, dial-up went away and and broadband took over, and that's certainly part of the picture. But it was those dot-com deals that couldn't last forever that really. Created the hole in the balance sheet. But you're also saying that, in your opinion, obviously you're just speaking for yourself, um, they also went after what they thought was a future that you could see internally, and the data was not what was getting traction. Exactly. So, for example, you know, there was a
1: really big push uh, in '99 uh, around trying to promote as much video content as we could. And yet, when you looked at, you know, usage data, people just weren't buying it because it was such a lousy experience you know at that point in time the web was really we were sort of in a holding pattern we we had all kinds of great ideas and we had lots of interesting new ways we wanted to present content especially video content but everybody who was doing it knew that we had to wait for broadband to arrive for that to really work
0: um so did you leave after the merger or before the merger
1: yeah i um I stuck around uh, until the merger closed. and <laughs> uh, the day that the merger officially closed, I think it was it was either Case, Steve Case, the CEO, or Bob Pittman, COO, They sent an email to all of us. and you know what we would we had been told and what we were expecting to hear was some broad, great new strategy where we would leverage some of this amazing Time Warner content, and then we would also leverage the, the technology that we had purchased, like the Netscape browser, to really like blow up the world of Internet uh, community and content. Instead, the email basically said, you know, this is a, you know, we've been waiting for this to close for a long time. You've all been doing such a great job, and our message to you today is to keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> when I read that, I was like i need to i need to find a way to get out of here and so i s- that's that was when I, that was the beginning of the end for me i just i just knew that that wasn't gonna work you know and and I wasn't the
0: only one um so before before i wrap up uh you you've stayed generally in in tech and digital media since then oh yeah absolutely
1: i took i left a o l oh yeah september ninth two thousand and one mm. And I was going to start a new life, um, take some time off. Uh, on Monday, September 11th, 2001, um, things changed a little bit <laughs> because of that. And uh, you know, I ended up I ended up using what I'd learned for a while there in the nonprofit space, trying to earn a little bit of my soul back doing internet advocacy, that kind of thing. But I got to work with people like Joe Trippy, which was really cool. Yeah. Uh, but then I got back into the whole Silicon Valley startup thing and ended up moving out here and worked through a success of a number of startups and also spent some time at, you know, big people like Nokia uh, and, you know, but yeah, I'm still very much in tech and I still very much love it. And, you know, it's, it's the only place to be if you want to see the future unfold.
0: You what, know? what are you, where are you today? What are you working on today?
1: Right now I work for an Australian startup called Filler. And they have they, they've created some really amazing machine learning technology that has created the world's most accurate autofill. Um, I'm sure if you've ever used it in your browser, you've mm-hmm. seen a lot of goofy mistakes. Yeah. But what these guys did, though, is they, they built autofill that's 98%, 100% accurate, first time the first time you experience a form. And they've turned it into a service um, that, you can, that you can integrate into your apps. And so there's a lot of need for this. You know, for companies like Ebates and any kind of shopping aggregator, where their model is to sort of promote a product within their app and then send their user to a different checkout to purchase that product. So, our my company, F- Filler, it solves that problem right now.
0: Cool. Uh, we'll check that out. I'll put a link in the so- show notes. Um, what I'd like to end with is, so you sort of said that the way we behaved. Going back to 1996, uh, the way we behaved back then as, you know, readers, members of the community it was sort of the same then as it is today. I'm curious, though, going back to 1996, did you see fr- from the other side, were there things that you thought you were pioneering that, oh, well, this is the way news coverage will work online in the future? This is the way politics will work online in the future, um, that, that didn't come to pass or that were abandoned? Like, I guess my question is, uh, the state of, of online journalism, online political coverage, um, did you think it would be better or or worse? Or what do you think 20 years on?
1: Yeah, I mean, like a lot of people, I was very much an idealist. Uh, at that point, I thought that, uh, if we made it possible and easy for people to access a lot of different quality content, that overall, you know, the the overall IQ of a news consumer would go up, and that there would also be an uptick in sort of civility and reasoned <laughs> discourse. I really did really did think that um, because there were some examples of that early on um, within our own websites that I worked on and some other places. Uh, I didn't expect content to be reduced to such small little nuggets of you know things that don't actually require much attention span yeah. um, that that I feel like has gotten way too extreme, but it makes sense in, in when you consider you know how people interact with mobile now, but yeah, it's a little a little disillusioned to look around and, at the landscape, but then there are also some really high points too. I mean, outlets like Politico do a great job; they're they're not biased. Uh, you know, organizations like Longform.org are really serving a great purpose. Medium has really done a great job. So, you know, I would say it's mixed at this point. Um, and, you know, the other thing about trolls too, and sort of that kind of discourse. We just have so many different channels for them now that, you know, it's hard to avoid them.
0: Uh, Well, Carl Metzen, thank you so much for uh, coming on the Internet History Podcast and remembering that that crucial era. And um, we've got an election this year again. So um, hopefully uh, Mark Zuckerberg has fixed things and (laughs) this one will go better than uh, than the last one in terms of of trolls and, and interference and things like that.
1: Yeah, and automated trolls and interference. Like nobody would have. That's not something we were thinking about back then at all. You couldn't even have imagined it. No, I really just the advent of Twitter and Facebook was something that you know a, a lot of people missed because on the surface it seemed like you know just a repackaging of of things that people could already do, you know, like message boards and. Single topic communities and that kind of thing, but nobody really understood the kind of the power of the network effect uh, that you know, Twitter and, and Facebook would create. I don't think Zuckerberg did
0: clearly. <laughs> uh, well, again, uh, Carl, thank you so much, and um, excellent episode. So, at this point, as you can hear, um, I was ready to. Um, make that my edit point and um, wrap up the episode. But Carl and I kept talking and he had such uh, so many great stories um, and more details about the especially the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. So uh, we turned back on the mics and Carl was kind enough to share this story.
1: So as the as the Monica year um, unfolded, uh, some we became very aware at AOL that organizations and, you know, both on. Capitol Hill and in the media were starting to take us a little bit more seriously and really were beginning to understand the power that we had in terms of our ability to channel eyeballs at content. And, and as that Monica summer ended, uh, Ken Starr completed his whole, his whole investigation and he wrote a massive report that he said he would be happy to you know, give to Congress. You know this this was the star report and so Congress said yeah we would love to have this report what was not reported at the time was how the report was distributed so traditionally when something is given is, is released by the Congress on Capitol Hill every news organization gets a copy of it at the same time and that's what they said they were gonna do with the star report show up I think it was like 1030 in the morning on ironically September 11th 1998 Um, and you'll get your CD with the star report. What, what was not reported at the time was that there was a very strong partisan, um, push inside Congress to get this thing out in front of as many people as possible. So they could search it and read all the tawdry details of the democratic president. And so for me, I ended up getting a call from a former source of mine, um, it's two days before the report was supposed to be public. And this person said, hey, would you guys like this earlier? Because um, I have a friend who will give you the star report earlier if you promise to get it indexed and searchable and online as fast as possible.
0: And and, um, and that came from what? From Delay's office?
1: Yeah. Or you, so you
0: maybe can't identify. I'm not asking you to.
1: No, no. I mean, the source was not from DeLay, but the source was a conduit from then majority whip Tom DeLay's office. Mm -hmm. And so uh, she said, you know, if you can put together an FTP box, um, give me the address and we'll uh, we'll send it to you before anybody else gets it. And so, you know, we saw the news opportunity that this had and we were really excited about the fact that, you know, here's an opportunity for the AOL News Channel to do something you know, to essentially break something on its own. And so we put together a whole team of database people and ops people and sure enough, on the day that the report was supposed to be released, we got it about two hours before everybody else, which was enough time to index this 445 page thing, uh, package it up real nice in a way that, you know, any user can surf it and search it. Yeah, and then we put it up. And so that became the then-largest news story on the web for that time. I think something like 1.2 million people visited that story Uh, in the first 24 hours it was up, which now doesn't seem like a lot, but then was huge.
0: If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a long-time listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is Pod, and my personal Twitter is McC.